So if you have your Bibles, we are in the passage that Taylor read. It's First Peter chapter 2, verses 11 through 17. So um, basically, when I look at what Peter's facing today, back then and what's going on today, there's not, not much has changed. Um, Christians in the first century and throughout all of church history have faced persecution. It looks different. It takes on different forms, but we do face different types of persecution attacks um, from an ungodly world that does not like God, doesn't like Jesus Christ, doesn't like the gospel. So we get attacks from the culture, uh, from people, maybe from the government or educational systems. And the, the trickier thing is sometimes it's very overt, but the trickier part is it's becoming more subtle these days. Um, <laughs> Satan um, attacks us in very clever ways, and there's times that we don't even know we're getting attacked. But our minds, our thoughts are drifting away from God's word. Our, our hearts are, are drifting away from God's truth. And we don't even realize it because we're getting used to uh, spiritual junk food or a slightly twisted version of <clears throat> what looks like God's word but has maybe Christian terms, but a, a philosophic, a philosophical or, or non-theological underpinning. That, that makes it look good on the outside, but not theologically sound in the inside. So the days of types of ways we're attacked, is this changing? And it's ever, ever changing. And it's becoming actually more complicated being a pastor to understand what's happening in this world and what to address and how to address it. Um, in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, um, <clears throat> Paul writes to Timothy, and I'll just throw a quick footnote. I'm, I've always been really curious about 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, mainly because in both these situations, Peter and Paul are toward their last days. They're writing the most pertinent things um, to their people because there's very specific concerns. That's why there's a second. And there's a there's a second Timothy and 2 Peter. And their tone is very um, urgent and very um, just like pay attention and take um, the gospel very seriously. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 12 to 13, 2 Timothy, Paul says this to Timothy here, Indeed, all those who desire to live godly lives in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. He says this in the future tense. He says that this will happen for those who desire who are living godly lives. I believe if you're living a godly life in an ungodly world, there should be some kind of reaction to your life. <clears throat> Otherwise, you're playing this non-Christianity. I heard this preacher called it secret agent Christianity. I'm like, secret agent Christianity is goofy. There's no such thing as a secret agent Christianity. Um, your Christianity is to need to be lived out, is to be bold. And so in verse 13, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being see deceived. So if you're going to live a, a godly life, if you're going to be a Christ follower, we can expect um, persecution in this life. But the great thing is, 
um, Jesus, Paul, Peter, all gives us tons of instruction of what it looks like and how to live godly lives, gospel-centered lives in the midst of suffering in an ungodly world. So this morning um, from this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17, we're going to do just that. Learn how to live godly lives in an ungodly world. Um, again, we haven't been in this chapter for a couple weeks. We had David come preach about the talents um, from Christ Journey Church and how to steward our lives for the gospel, our resources for the gospel. And then last week we, we had an Easter service and just were presented the gospel for Easter service. So now we're back jumping back into Easter. I mean, First Peter. So I just want to recount and <clears throat> go backwards to get a running start into today's passage again. If you recall, Peter's talking to an audience a, a Jewish believing audience where Nero, the emperor, has set fire to <coughs> the, the city of Rome and, and it is burning. And the people of Rome are like upset. They're like wondering what's going on. And so <coughs> Nero feeling the heat upon him um, from the people. And he, he's like, you know, what do I do? How do I get the people off my back? And so he chooses the easiest scapegoats. He said the Christians did it. The Christians set fire to the city. But the reality, it, it was Nero who had this fetish of building bigger and bigger buildings. But he had, to get, he had to get the people off his back. So he blamed and used the Christians as the scapegoat. So the people of Rome all turned against the Christians. And so they're persecuting them. They're, they're, they want to kill them. Um, and so the Christians are basically running for their lives. They're being scattered. Like, they're leaving their homes, their jobs, their livelihood. I believe families are being separated. Um, and so what Peter does, he systematically addresses them in the most spiritual way possible. So now they're, now they're dispersed. These Jewish believers have lost their home and their belongings pretty much their earthly treasures and their way of life. And so what Peter does first is that he reminds them that their true home is in heaven. They, they'll get the best inheritance in the life to come. And so he addresses their, um, the reality that they lost a lot, but they're going to gain so much more in the life to come. And then he recognizes that these believers, after they kind of calm down, there's a temptation when you have lost and have suffered and gone through a lot that they could do a couple things. And one is to give into worldliness and a worldly attitude and a worldly mindset. And so this is where Matt McGinnis preached and said, hey, we are called to live unmistakable holy lives in an unholy world, to live separate and distinct not hiding yourself away, but distinct as salt and light in a dark world. And so you do that in the world, living distinctly for God's glory. And then as hardship kind of pours itself on, um, there's another temptation we face is to blame each other. Um, blame the husband, the wife, um, other people around you for the the things that you're you're facing. And so um, what Peter does now is to remind these believers that they are family. They've all been born again, um, <clears throat> given and granted a new life, and they're a new community, and they're called to be brothers and sisters. 
and fight the temptation to look at each other and say, you, you are my enemy. You are the one that has contributed to all the suffering that we are facing. And so Peter sets that down and reminds them that we are born again. We are a new family. And he says, hey, we are also a learning community. We are to grow in Christ together. We can't just live off our, the fumes of our Christianity from yesteryear. We need to continue to take in the pure milk of God's word and do so on a regular basis and to care for each other deeply <clears throat> and on a regular basis. And then a couple weeks ago when I preached, Peter frames things up once again. You're not just family, but <clears throat> because you're a family, you're not of a fallen race anymore. You are now of a chosen race. Your identity is in Christ. You are a royal priesthood. Now you have a God-shaped or gospel-shaped identity rooted in the gospel. And so Peter does all this to help them um, live this life in the midst of a suffering, um, ungodly world. And so he does all this to prepare them so that they know who they are in Christ and so <clears throat> this is the same thing Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where in the Sermon on the Mount, <clears throat> Jesus is talking about how to live a countercultural life. And anytime you live countercultural, yes, you're going to face persecution. Even at the very end of the Beatitudes, he says the very last Beatitude is that you will be persecuted for Christ's sake, for righteousness' sake. And a few verses after that, Jesus says this in Matthew 5, verse 16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that your good works, <clears throat> so that they may see your good works and give glory to God the Father who is in heaven. I just want to hit a few quick, noteworthy observations. We are to be light in the world. We are not to hide a light under a bushel. We are not to close down a light. But I want you to think about what do Christians do in suffering, um, in persecution, in difficult times. Um, <clears throat> very clearly in this passage, the command here for, is for Christians to let their light shine before others. Okay? It doesn't say hide. It doesn't say stay home. It doesn't say, like, you know, separate yourself and form your own Geneva. All right? I'm kind of hitting on Calvin. Calvin was a great theologian, but... He formed this theological tank, and people kind of hid themselves from society. Great theologically, bad missionally. Um, I, I think they did some missionally, but I think that they did some things wrong in that situation. They hid themselves. You need to do both. You need to be growing theologically. If you're growing theologically, you're going to touch the people around them. Number two, <clears throat> the Christians displayed their works. It was noticeable. The light was noticeable. They weren't showing off, but they were seeking to bless others, to build up others to spread the gospel. And then <clears throat> understanding the same concept with light. Uh, <clears throat> the goal was to glorify God with their works, not to glorify themselves. Okay, And some Christians, when things are difficult, they just hide their light, they hide inside, and they refuse to do good works. No, it's very clearly, this in this one little verse, we are to do good works. We are to do good works that would bless others and glorify God. We don't just say, I'm just not going to serve anymore. Um, that's not what Jesus is saying. And so very similarly with Peter here, he's addressing <coughs> sojourners and citizens of heaven, and he's going to tell them, 
you're scattered, and it's not to just give up on your Christianity and flip out spiritually. He's literally going to tell them how to live this Christian life as a follower of Christ in this harsh, difficult situation. And so we're going to look at two perspectives, one as a sojourner and the second as a citizen. And <clears throat> Peter's going to give and explain this, the necessary grace and perspective and how to live out godly lives in an ungodly world. So the first, <clears throat> the first part we're going to look at is from the perspective of a sojourner. If you understand you're a sojourner, um, alien, okay, I probably need to qualify aliens. It makes me think of silly things. I remember a Q&A back in youth ministry, and we're like talking to the senior pastors, and we're asking, are there aliens? And we're thinking about the aliens that come in US, UFOs, and he spins it on us, and he says, no, <coughs> there's not that kind of aliens, but you are the aliens, the Christians, every one of us, we are aliens in the sense that this is not our home. As Christians, we are in a foreign land. And so this is the way that Peter's going to minister to us and to his audience back then. He says this, <clears throat> from the perspective of a sojourner, we need to do a couple things. We need to cultivate our heart and watch our testimony. So if you see in verse 11, verse Peter chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, <clears throat> Peter speaks to his brothers and sisters with both truth and love. He lays in the truth first. That's this awesome biblical counseling technique. And then he lays in um, the truth. So he begins with the love and gives the truth. He says, beloved, he says in a, in a tenderness that you are my brothers and sisters in Christ. I recognize that we have been saved by and adopted by the same father. We have been redeemed by the same Savior. We have been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. All that is conveyed in beloved. <coughs> we are family, <coughs> and we are part of God's family. And he says this next. He says, I urge you. He's not throwing down his apostolic authority on them. He's literally saying, I urge you. This is from the Greek word, Parakaleo, and it simply means to come alongside, um, to beseech, to encourage um, another person or his audience. And so Peter is not saying, hey, you do that and I do something else. He says, I, I am suffering with you. I, I'm a sojourner with you. I'm in this struggle with you. And I'm going to come along with you in this journey, and we're going to follow Christ together. And so Peter says, beloved, I urge you. And he says very specifically, as sojourners and as exiles. These are both very similar words. And he's, P Peter's reminding the audience that you guys are sojourners and exiles. In the NASB, it says aliens and strangers. And Peter's pointing this out, this theological truth, out for a very specific purpose. His, in, his intent to, to remind them that they are sojourners is to encourage them, to remind their audience that this suffering that they're facing is temporary. Um, it could be a year, two years, it could be their whole life. But the fact that they will be in eternity one day um, is an encouragement. It could be 50 or 60 years of pain and suffering, but an eternity of glory one day. And some people, some of us may have a calling for very intense suffering for all of your human life. But 
eternal glory for all of eternity. And so that's the perspective that he's trying to remind them. That this suffering that you're facing is temporary. But your true citizenship is in heaven. Um, <clears throat> and so he reemphasizes the same idea with a <clears throat> of sojourner with the same word exile. And it's really a similar word. An exile person is a person who's a visitor, is passing through a country, perhaps for a brief time. And so the same idea, it's temporary, you're passing through. And so he's just trying to encourage them over and over. You're just passing through. The author of Hebrews reinforces the same idea in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 14. He says this, For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Man, I need to remind myself this over and over. We need to remind ourselves, there's no lasting city here, but let's seek the city to come. But while we're passing through, we want to make what? the most impact and be as faithful as we can to Christ while we are here, okay? Um, I appreciate having Brother Samuel come today. We've talked on the phone once and met in person. He is trained um, by a friend of mine too. And I appreciate his desire. I don't know how long his season at NC State will be, but he sees it as worth it for the sake of the gospel. <coughs> as one who's passing through this life, to spend a season, Lord willing, a good, solid season to establish an Asian-American ministry at NC State. I think that's a big deal um, for a couple reasons. And I, I resonate so much with 90% of what he's saying as a church versus a parachurch. In a sense, I know Asians are the fastest growing demographics in this area. Um, there's not many churches and there's not many parachurch works um, targeted to this group, people group. And so we need people. I want to get behind um, what Samuel's doing because our, our visions match in a very unique sense. And so we want to pray for you. Um, we can already commit that to you in advance. And my, my hope is that some folks here would, would seek to support you practically through giving and helping out with outreach. And so we want to throw that. It, it is worth it in this life. <clears throat> to make the most of the opportunities that God gives us in life and the life to come. And so what Peter gives now is this next perspective. Besides the fact that we are passing through, he knows that this is a major, major, major struggle inside our soul. And so in the last part of verse 11, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul, okay? I know some of you guys and some of what we're facing, I know kind of what I'm going. We have this battle all the time in our soul every single day. Some of us more intensely than others. Some of us maybe are so in tune to giving into the flesh of the world, we don't have this battle. Some of us are so spiritual, where we've trained ourselves so, so spiritually that the war has become easier to fight. But either way, we have this flesh, this sin nature, this baggage of flesh that hangs on us that's hell-bent to draw us toward sinning in multiple forms, to, to lust, to, uh, to be disunified, to give into all times of worldliness. Um, and then we have this spirit nature which dwells in our heart Call, it's called the Holy Spirit. And so these two forces, these two natures are literally warring at each other 
on a moment-by-moment basis at the core of your being, inside your soul. Um, One author said, this is literally a fight that you'll have in your life until you die. And I believe it because in 1992, I became a Christian and some things were better. I had this peace in my heart. I knew I was going to heaven and a presence with me. But there's this daily fight against myself. Many times when things get sticky and our, our, our soul is battling, we think the battle is against people around us. Um, so we start blaming people around us, usually the closest people to us. I appreciate what D.L. Moody said. He says, I have more trouble with D.L. Moody than any other man I know. He knew the problem was within him to fight sin daily, to repent of sin daily, to preach the gospel to himself daily, forsaking sin and clinging to Christ daily. That's why we press so heartily to come to church on Sunday. So we are reminded of the gospel week in and week out. We've seen the gospel. We preach the gospel. We want to encourage you in the gospel. And so what's happening on Sunday morning is air, air warfare. We're fighting on a broader warfare level. On the growth group level or the disciple group, group level, if you're not in a group, we will form new groups. We'll form new discipleship groups for the sake of your soul, to care for your soul, to do ground warfare in a very specific manner to help you to fight your sin and my sin. Um, I need your help to fight sin. I have sin problems all the time. Calvin says this, our heart is an idol-making factory. It's constantly making new idols. When you think you deal, deal with one, well, he's gonna, your, your, your sinful heart will make another one. And so Paul says, and Peter says, and Jesus all, all says we have this problem with worship. We need to learn how to worship Jesus Christ as king and not ourself as king. And so we're a fa- constant battle of um, lordship and, and worship within the core of our being. And so what Peter says in this passage is abstain from the passions of the flesh. So if you just take a survey of the things that you're tempted in, you need to think about how to do what? In, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says take drastic measures. Literally pluck your eyeballs out, right? Cut off your hands. Do drastic measures for the sake of your sanctification as you wage war within your soul. Um, there's so much more biblical counseling that I could give to you. Um, some people explain it this way. Hey, Jesus Christ dwells in your heart. Um, and just imagine Jesus Christ is right there. And he's right there abiding with you in the, in the sense of the Holy Spirit. And, and you're in this battle. Are you going to choose Jesus' side moment by moment? Or are you going to say, hey, no, Jesus, I'm going to choose the other side. And so these, there's so many ways to look at it. But Paul's main point, excuse me, Paul says all this stuff too, but Peter in this case, he wants us to deal with our heart, to look at what our roots are tied to in our hearts. And if there are, a root is tied to sinful habits, sinful tendencies, he wants us to take the scissors of repentance and cut them off at the core. Snip them. Basically, that's what repentance is. <laughs> and so you know how you're doing by your conduct. I know 
when I have, I'm drawn towards sin or I have a bad attitude, I understand my self is rooted in my own sin nature and my own sinful tendencies. And I know just chase down those roots and where to cut them off. And sometimes <coughs> sometime we do a couple different things. Sometimes we do a true cut of repentance. Sometimes we don't do a true cut. We kind of just like put some bug spray on it or whatever or some, you know, whatever, some killer. And it kills parts of it, but it doesn't kill the whole thing. We need to deal with sin at the root. And so that's the first. So as Peter <coughs> says, as we deal with our inner person, guess what will happen? The gospel will able to display itself and manifest its power all the more. And so that brings us to verse 12. As we cultivate a heart rooted in the gospel, guess what? We're able to reflect God's glory in verse 12. Peter says this, Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable. Your conduct, your testimony, the way you live. He says, In the world, amongst Gentiles, unbelievers, to keep your conduct, particularly as you live in this world, doesn't say hide, doesn't say stay in the closet, but to keep and maintain a conduct in such a way that your conduct is honorable amongst Gentiles. So <clears throat> I, I keep saying this over and over. In, in war, in pandemic, in all these situations, even when there was a great plague <clears throat> in Luther's time, it wasn't time to hide. It was a Christian's call to serve all the more. Sometimes I don't think we get our Christianity right. Um, I, I'm not saying be foolish and be stupid. Let's protect ourselves, of course. But he says to do so honorably. This is a multifaceted, dynamic Greek word. And it, it just ties in a whole bunch of ideas. To do so honorably is to do so in, in the purest sense, in the highest sense, in the most noblest kind of goodness. It brings in the idea of being lovely, winsome, gracious, noble, and excellent all together. We'll bring the whole package of honor, being honorable in our conduct amongst Gentiles. My hope as we pray for our campus ministries and our local churches that we would be honorable in our conduct. We're, we're, that we're not known as snobs or stuck-up people or the Bible beaters. That we would be known as honorable as we relate to the world around us. Why? So that when evildoers speak against us, or let me read specifically, so that when they speak against us, you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. In the first century, there were evildoers who sought to give Rome or the Christians a hard time, and they would do things and twist things around constantly. So they would in the first century, they would accuse the Christians of terrorism, of burning Rome. <laughs> that wasn't true. They didn't do that, but the world, evildoers would do that. They would make up things and say, this is what you did. And then they would accuse the Christians of being atheists because they didn't worship Caesar or they didn't worship the Roman gods. And they would accuse them of cannibalism because they would think and hear about the Christians practicing the Lord's Supper. You eat and drink What? And they would accuse them of cannibalism. And then they hear about this Christian love, love one another, and say, Christians, you guys are practicing incest? Just twisted things happen. And I want you to know, um, as a pastor, and just as a Christian, I face twisted things where evildoers literally seek to literally destroy my life. 
They literally make up things and tell it as gospel truth to everybody else and say, Gary did this. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I didn't do that. It's this craziness in the way things happen these days. But this is what they do. This is what evildoers do. And so um, it, was, it was interesting being on the news nine days ago. Literally, I knew the video camera was on me, and all I did was want to talk about Jesus. <laughs> and I was like, okay, how do I just make sure I talk only about Jesus? But they like to take little snip clips on the news and just say it and bend it another direction because they want their agenda to be served. I didn't think it was the most terrible thing by Channel 17, but it wasn't a good context of what I was trying to say that day either. So Peter is urging all the more, let's be mindful of our witness and our conduct. Why? Because the day of visitation is coming. Um, there's a lot to be said about the day of visitation, but I want to at least lay down this much. Theologians across the board understand this is a day when God visits lost sinners and saves them by grace. And so Peter is teaching this is a day when God visits the hearts of unbelievers, and then by grace, where unbelievers respond to saving grace, and they don't just respond to saving grace and saving faith. They turn and they glorify God because he or she remembers, guess what? The testimony, the authentic testimony, the salt and light testimony of the believers living authentically in and around them. They knew about the Lord through the testimony of believers. On this week, I came across this, this powerful testimony of two missionaries. I, I've never heard this one, but it just rocked my mind. I don't know, I've, I've probably read this story about five or six times, just kind of reading it over and thinking about it. But two missionaries um, named Herb and Ruth Klingen, uh, they wrote a book based on their own diary called The Song of Deliverance. During World War II, <clears throat> These two missionaries, Herb and Ruth Klingen, and their young son spent three years in a Japanese prison camp in the Philippines. In his Herb's diary, he records that <clears throat> their captors murdered, tortured, and starved to death many of the fellow prisoners. The, cap, the camp commandant, Kanchi, Kanishi, was hated and feared more than the others, Herb writes. Kanchi found, found and invented a way to abuse us even more, the prisoners even more. He increased the rations, but gave this food called pale. I think I'm pronouncing around P-A-L-A-Y, pale or pele. Basically, it's unhusked rice. Okay, so... Eating the rice with its sharp, razor-sharp outer shell would cause intestinal bleeding that would kill us within hours. And so we had, he says that we had no tools to remove the tusk, the husk. And so doing so, the manual job would involve pounding it or with rocks, pounding the grain with rocks and rolling it with a heavy stick and would consume more energy and calories to pound this, these rice grains than the rice grains would give us energy and supply us. He records in his diary, 
it was a death sentence for our intestines, he says in the in his diary or his book, Song of Deliverance. Before death would could claim our lives, however, General Douglas MacArthur and his forces liberated them from captivity just in the right time. That very day, Kanishi had been found... <coughs> oh, excuse me. That very day, Kanishi had planned to gun down the remaining uh, prisoners <coughs> that day and to kill them all. But they escaped with um, Douglas MacArthur's help. Many years later, Herb and Ruth learned that Kanishi ha had been found working as a groundkeeper in Manila on, on a golf course. And he was put on trial later on for his, his, his war crimes, and he was hanged. But <clears throat> prior to um, being hung, the one-time torturer said, said this. He said, when God graciously visited Kanchi with salvation, the one-time torturer remembered the godly behavior, the godly conduct of the missionaries he once persecuted. Their example became the unspoken means of Kanishi's salvation. So their testimony spoke Christ so much to them, he eventually came to Christ. And so I want you to know that you're a God-honoring, Christ-centered, Christ -centered, gospel-reflecting testimony matters much in every season. Don't think that God will not use it. Um, I'm sure in this season, they didn't know if God would use it. Um, but many years later, God remembered their testimony. Um, the, last, the last few verses I'm going to read because I want you guys to break up um, in discussion as we're building this in into the life of this church. The second um, point is um, the perspective of being a citizen of heaven will aid us in living godly lives now in an ungodly world. And so um, I'm going to give you five quick imperatives to, so that you would understand what it looks like <coughs> to be a citizen here and now. The first imperative is a call to submission. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, Peter calls all Christians to be subject for the Lord's sake. Okay, the command is to be subject for the Lord's sake. So if you want your reason why, it's for the Lord's, Lord's sake. Um, what are we to do <coughs> in this ungodly world? He says we are to submit ourselves. And this is a military term to literally arrange ourselves under um, <coughs> the authority. In our case, our commander-in-chief is Jesus Christ. Um, he's the ultimate authority, but in this passage... The authority and the degree of submission is quantified and explained. And so we see that in verses 13 and 14, the second imperative. We see the extent of submission, how we are to relate in this ungodly world. Um, Peter says, to what extent are we to honor and submit for the Lord's sake? He gives the answer in the latter part of verse 13 and 14. To every human institution, every human institution, whether it be the emperor or the supreme or the governor as sent to him to punish those who do evil 
and to praise those who do good. Um, today we this often this also infers um, to to judges, police, other authorities, also in our democratic nations. Every every authority, and I want you to know, the gospel uniquely has this. I don't know how to put it. A divine capacity for the gospel to thrive no matter what kind of government it is. In a democracy, we have freedom. We have every freedom to run with the gospel and to make it known. We have incredible freedom. But in a, in a different type of government where it's suppressive or there's dictators um, or the early church or your, when life is online, the, <clears throat> I find how I read the, the Bible and church history, the gospel seems to thrive even more under duress, under hardship, because the true Christians, what? They rise up, the the I don't know what I'm going to call them. The secret Asian Christians, who are probably not Christians anyways, either hide or just aren't weren't Christians in the first place. They hide, they die, they don't act like Christians. But it's fascinating. <clears throat> in persecution, in hard times, <clears throat> a healthy Christian will thrive. They will grow. And persecution, I believe, spreads the gospel. And it, you're, if you have a faith that's worth something, it'll continue to grow. You'll deepen your faith. You'll cling hard, harder and closer to Christ and to his word. And so that's the, the fascinating thing with um, <clears throat> whatever government you have. I believe your Christian life can and really should thrive if we are healthy and focused on Christ and his gospel. And so maybe a couple of footnotes to the extent of the gospel. I can't cover all this, but um, there are some examples where as we submit to the government that um, there are some guidelines where we, we won't submit to the government and the institution. And, and the, the, there's a couple exceptions. And so I'm just going to try to lay out two principles that are pretty broad, but hopefully helpful. Um, in the Bible, I think of two situations. One is with Daniel in Daniel 1 and Daniel 3, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had a situation where Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, um, you need to bow down to me and worship me and, <coughs> and my gods. And so Daniel and his, and his homies make an appeal. Um, they didn't worship God, but they make an appeal to do something else. So <coughs> they did something. They disobeyed in one sense. Um, Nebuchadnezzar to a specific hand, a specific command, but they made an appeal to him. And so that's how they're able to address that situation. And then you think of um, another situation, you track Peter's life in Peter in Acts chapter four and five. And I want to focus more on Peter because Peter wrote this letter. Um, so Peter is fascinating. If you think about his whole life, I want to trace it briefly. There's a time when Peter was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he might have been praying, he might have been sleeping. But anyway, some Roman shoulders get up, and they seem like they're, they want to take Jesus. And so what does he do? He takes control of the matter, and he whips out his sword, and he what? Cuts his head off? No, just his ear off, all right? And so Peter's response at that time was bold, but it was foolish and out of control. And so we see Peter journeying in his Christian life. And, <clears throat> and later on toward the Gospels, Peter, in one sense, says, I would never deny Christ. What? He was asked a question. Um, Do you know Jesus? Were you associated with these disciples? And what? 
Peter goes, uh, 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 I don't know them. And he denied him. So something else is going on with Peter spiritually. He, he's, he shows what? A deg- degree of cowardliness. Um, he's definitely, his identity's not quite there in Christ. He, he, his Christianity's kind of broke. Um, but now we see in Acts chapter 4 and 5, Peter and John are what? Preaching the gospel. Their, their faith is alive. Their identity is being lived out. And so they're preaching. And, and what happens here in this situation? They're asked by the government to what? Stop preaching um, God's word. And they have this basic response. Um, we not, we're not going to stop preaching God because we what? What's the phrase? You guys remember? We, <coughs> we are to obey God rather than man. And so this is very fascinating. He, they're not saying to <coughs> Peter and John's response doesn't attack the institution directly. doesn't attack them um, specifically. But they simply make an appeal that we are going to obey God instead. Um, <coughs> so I find it possible that there are times that we can not obey the specific law, but we're still honoring the institution at the same time. And the same goes for all the political stuff and who our president may be. It goes back and forth every, you know, every term or every two terms. But I see it as possible as you look at this passage, we can honor God who's where our ultimate honor goes because he is what the ultimate authority. He set, set, set every institution here. We learned that in John in Romans 13. And again, once again here, we can honor the institutions God set, even if we have differing views and perspectives. And that's why I believe that Peter says a number of things to close this out. And so those are our broad principles. We could talk about this further and what this looks like. But these are the broad principles I believe Paul Paul and Peter and Jesus gives and how we relate to the government. I mean, think about Jesus. He could overthrow the government at any time he could have. But what? Every time he submitted, he had made appeals. Look, the shade came in and been is extra nice to us right now. Imperative number three, the intent of submission. Uh, the intent of obeying God's command here is for the Lord's sake. By submitting to every institution in First Peter chapter two verse fifteen, and he says this is what the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Pretty straightforward. This is God's will. This is God's design for us to live out a Christian. As we do good, we'll put to silence the ignorance, the foolishness, the arrogance, the anti-authority, the anti-truth, the anti-gospel of ignorant people. The Bible is very clear. We'll put them to silence. It didn't say in this passage when there's government we disagree with for Christians to what? Overthrow the government, to rush the capital. It doesn't say anything like that. It doesn't say burn buildings. It doesn't say shoot the president. It doesn't say anything like that. It literally says we are to do good works. Super clear here for Christ and his church so that we would put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the word of God. Um, literally, put silence means to, to muzzle. Um, so I just want to think about our Christianity and the state of the church. Are we following God's word when it comes to this? How we respond to the government. Whether they're a nice government, good government, bad government. How are we to respond? 
Can we entrust our lives to the Lord in the same way Jesus Christ entrusts his life to the Father as he walked through this life? Imperative number four. Freedom through submission is the point here. Verse 16. Sam may argue, but as Christians, are we not free? What's all this submission stuff? All right. Um, do we really need to submit? And this is what Peter says and he, as he anticipates this question. Peter says this in verse 16. Live as people who are free. Okay. It's not this absolute total freedom. Do whatever you want. He quantifies it. Not using your freedom as a cover up for evil. In other words, you're free, but it's not a license to go sin. <laughs> you're free, and he quantifies it, to live as servants of God. He frees you up to live as servants of God. Freely serve the Lord in so many ways. That's all he's trying to say. In verse 17, the last imperative here is the honor, the honor of submission. Um, so, Track with me careful, carefully. Some people may say to the government that Jesus, Paul, and Peter, in this case, is saying to submit to. And you could say, hey, I, I don't like our government. I'm going to disobey. And so we know what it looks like to disobey the government because it looks like rebellion. Okay? But we also take a place of outward conformity. <laughs> we, on the outward, are submitting to the government um, and we're not doing anything to break any laws. But in your heart of heart, you have this kind of ongoing attitude like, I hate our government. I hate our president. And I want you to know, as you express those kind of attitudes, you're actually expressing an attitude that's also related to your attitude toward the Lord. Because he's actually set up these governments and this, these umbrellas of authority. I understand we may not agree, and we may not like it. They may be do sinful things. But there's a sense that submission comes with two pieces, a heart that is submitted to the Lord internally in your heart and a heart and outward action and conduct that also shows submission and a testimony to, to, to the world. And so Peter's an amazing preacher and writer and he takes everything that he's preached and he takes verse 17 and sums it up really quickly in four quick phrases. He says, honor everyone. <laughs> that means I'll, get, I'll tell you in the Greek, the Latin, the Spanish, everything. It means honor everyone. <laughs> it's really straightforward. Honor everyone. And then he gets really specific. He says, love the brotherhood. So I understand there's temptations, and it is sad and it broke my heart and many pastors' heart, and even the Lord's heart even more, to see the church divided under just simple discussions. Who did you vote for? Oh, you voted for him? Or you voted for her, and there's literally like this divide. You can see the walls come up in your church setting. <laughs> and this happened, and this is where you're gonna separate, and this is where you're gonna divide the reality that you voted for this person, the other person voted for this one. I want you to know your 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 unity in Christ has to be much better than that. Your political party. Okay? I really feel deep down you have an issue of righteousness, um, a self-righteousness. I feel more right toward my party, and I feel more right toward your. I mean, we, ha we understand righteousness in this community. We're in a college town. I go to Duke. I go to, you know, NC State. You know, I, I have this righteousness. I'm going to wear my colors inside and out. We throw the same kind of righteousness, and we put it over on top of our Christianity. We know how to dress that dress far more than we dress and wear Christ. And so, basically, Peter's saying, wear Christ. 
dress in Christ and to the degree that we love our brothers, even if we have different perspectives and have different disagreements, especially in the area of preferences and non-essential areas. Obviously, we want to fight for the core of Christianity. Anything that touches the gospel or related to the core of gospel, we hold those tightly. Everything else, boom, open-handed. We can have love and charity all around that for sure. And he says, what else? Fear God and honor the emperor. That's all he had to say. Um, three applications as I feel fear for my life. One, um, trust in Jesus Christ as your redeemer. When I thought about this passage, Jesus Christ alone is the God-man. Jesus Christ alone perfectly battled this war in his heart that he perfectly delighted um, in the Lord his whole entire life. He had the perfect cons conduct on the outside to the point that he lived the perfect life, was the Lamb and is the Lamb of God who died and rescues sinful man. So if this is you, I encourage you to turn and place your faith in Jesus Christ. If you see that you're struggling with sin, you might not have Jesus Christ and may need Jesus Christ to help you to fight the sin in your heart. Two application questions as we break up, as we think through and evaluate our lives backwards and think through how we're going to live forward. Um, <clears throat> inwardly, as, as, sojour as sojourners, what are areas that we are battling in our soul that we need more grace and accountability in? That's something you guys can ask each other. And as you thought about your week, where has maybe like the tire blown and <laughs> you've had this blow up <clears throat> in your life and you see, oh, wow, that was some ungodliness there. Um, recognize that. Trace that down as you talk with one another. Your irritability, your lack of self-control. And that's another discussion question. And then the, the, this is all at the bottom of the lyrics. And as what you, what you guys sung, sung, said, sung, sung earlier, there's a couple of discussion questions. And the last one de deals with um, submission, uh, with inner respect and outward submission. As we review the last months, let's ask ourselves, you know, what areas do we need more wisdom and grace and insight and how to apply the gospel in relationship to the authorities in which we live in? So we're going to pause for 10 minutes. Matt's going to read to the children. The rest of us, we're going to break for 10 minutes, and then we'll have Nicole and Mike close us out in a song, and then we'll break for lunch and after service festivities. Um, so let's turn to somebody. Uh, Hopefully someone that, you, as you get to know someone, let's turn to someone break over these two questions. They're on the bottom of the website or just walk through the two areas. Um, <clears throat> whether it's in your own heart, how's that going? Or you can walk through just how are we submitting to the institutions in our life? All right, break. Break.